in the case of a Chicago street gang, I literally am making a choice. Do I want to send my people away from selling drugs and off to try and take another thing, knowing that they might get killed, knowing that they might get arrested, knowing all of these things, which is going to be literally costly to me because I'm going to have to go out and recruit new people. I'm going to have to replace those guns, all of these things. On the streets of Chicago, two rival gangs find themselves on the verge of battle. Gang A has possession over a territory, a lucrative drug market that Gang B wants to seize. So will there be violence? And if so, what will it look like? That's exactly the sort of scenario that Chicago Harris professor Ethan Bueno de Mesquita has set out to better understand in his latest paper. Professor Bueno de Mesquita, thank you for being here. Sure, my pleasure. From Chicago gang fights to Mexican drug cartels to ISIS's campaigns in the Middle East, he's using game theory to look at the hard economics at the root of factional violence. What he found points to a whole new way of understanding when groups choose to fight, and it's throwing a wrench in our conventional wisdom. The motivation for working on this project was news reports uh, in Chicago that we had this huge run-up in drug violence in Chicago, and the story in the press was that that run-up in violence was the result of increased factionalization, that you got you had um, a change in the structure of Chicago street gangs from a few very large gangs to a lot of little gangs, each of which controlled a very small amount of territory, and that this was in some way inevitably going to lead to an increase in the homicides that we then saw mm-hmm. five years ago, four years ago. A 2012 gang audit found there are more than 600 gang factions in the city with a minimum combined membership of 70,000 people. Police Superintendent Gary McCarthy acknowledges it took several months after he first took over to see how splintered Chicago street gangs had become. First of all, I haven't the gangster disciples have split off into numerous factions. As of the last official estimate, there are now over 600 different gang factions in Chicago. They're all fighting against each other and they're doing it all over the city. It's a tough situation and unfortunately there doesn't appear to be an end in sight. So I think one thing that we typically talk about when we talk about factional conflict or that a lot of people think is sort of obvious is that more factions always means more violence and certainly there are forces at work in that direction but I think it's not always obvious that more factions means more violence or that factional splits always mean that peace is harder to make. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my work sort of surrounds those issues. How do we think about the effect of the number of factions? How do we think about the fact that factions split from each other and so governments have to negotiate with various groups? How do we think about the relationship of that to violence or our ability to make peace? In 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 my most recent work, I guess what I'm interested in is the idea that one of the things that factions fight about, I mean, typically when we think about about violent conflict, we are thinking about groups that are fighting over political control. But a lot of what goes on in violent conflict is groups fighting over economic control. So you think about the Mexican drug war, you think about Chicago street gangs, you even think about the conflict with ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And at least part of what's going on in all of those cases is fights over territory that are valuable for political reasons, maybe, but are certainly valuable for economic reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think those economic forces can pull really in the opposite direction from our intuitions about the effect of number of factions. So I was interested in sort of probing that intuition and thinking about, well, why should that be true? And so I wanted to write down a model that I thought, in a simplified form, because it's a model, but, but as faithfully as possible, captured what I thought the structure of that market looked like. And so I wanted to write down a model that included the idea of geography, that included the idea of territories from which 
factions were extracting economic profits, and which included the idea that factions might fight over control of that territory, uh, and then just see what the model had to say about what happens when you change the number of factions to try and see whether I could make sense in a simple economic model of this intuition that was in the press. And what I found was these ideas about when you have more factions, lots of things happen. And and the basic results of the model say that there's two competing forces. One is that when you get more and more factions, violence, in fact, happens more and more often. That is, gangs, in fact, engage in some level of fighting with each other more frequently. But when they do fight, and there's lots of them, the level of fighting is smaller. Because if you're a little street gang fighting over one more street corner, the stakes aren't that big. It's not clear how much you're willing to spend in terms of of, of money or in terms of personnel and life and these sorts of things mm-hmm. to take that one more street corner when that street corner itself faces lots of competition from other factions. Just you think about, I control this street corner and there's another gang on the next street corner. How much extra profit can I get? How much can I mark up my drugs, right? Probably not that much. But if I control 20 street corners, think about those street corners that are right in the interior of my territory, the people who want to buy from me don't have, uh, don't have competitors to go to. And so I can really mark up my product a lot in that setting. And those kinds of territories might be very valuable. And I might be able be willing to expend a lot of resources to take those kinds of territories. Mm-hmm. What does this model look like? How does it work? And how did you set it up? All right. So... Um, What it looks like, so when I work on a model, I try and write down the absolutely simplest version of the story I think I want to tell that I can. So what this model looks like is that I imagine that a city or a country or whatever, depending on what setting you're thinking about the model at work in, it could be Mexico and then you want to think about a country, it could be Chicago and then you want to think about a city, but same basic structure, Mm -hmm. is a circle. It's just a circle. And there's a few fixed points on that circle where if I own them, I can make some money. And why is it a circle? Um, why is it a circle? So, for simplicity's sake? Yes, for simplicity's sake. You want to choose a shape that has a few features. You want to choose a shape that lets territories touch each other. That's important, right? So that I can think about this idea of am I trying to take a territory that when I take it, I'll control a bunch of interior space where I can make a lot of money. So you want, a, you want, some, you want a shape that lets you think about this idea of of territories being contiguous with each other mm-hmm. and there being interior and exterior and borders and these sorts of things. And the circle is kind of the sh- simplest shape for thinking about that. Okay. There's a bunch of points on that circle that are these territories that we might fight over and we might control. And there's people who live on the circle, on the perimeter of the circle, and who are going to buy whatever product you have to sell. Or in the case of Mexico, you can think about there's farmers cultivating marijuana. And if you control a territory, you can go and force them to sell to you cheaply. Or in Afghanistan, you might think about Um, the point on a circle represents I control uh, a checkpoint on a highway and people who want to move products through the country have to go through my checkpoint and they're going to have to pay me money to go through my checkpoint, right? And then I want to think about the idea that I could go somewhere else if if I'm a person who wants to use this product. I could go to the point closest to me, but I could go somewhere else also. So there's costs to me, to all these people who live on the circle, of of doing their economic transactions further away, right? The further they have to go to do the ex- economic transactions, the more expensive it is for them. Sure. And so that means, so in the case of Afghanistan, right, I'd have to choose, if I'm not going to go through the nearest route, I'm going to have to choose a longer route around, and that's expensive. In the case of buying drugs, if I'm not buying from my nearest street corner, I'm going to have to go farther, literally go farther. And so the fact that those people living on that circle right, have costs for moving means that if I own a point where there's a lot of people around it, 
I have some market power because I can charge them higher prices mm -hmm. for the product than my competitors because my competitors have the disadvantage of being far away. And that's a very standard, that's a sta a, an idea that I, in the model, just took directly out of sort of economic modeling from the 1980s that, that people wanted to represent not thinking about violence but wanted to think about just product differentiation or think about competition. Uh, why are your gas stations next to each other as opposed to far apart? Right? Mm -hmm. Why when you drive down the street do you see a cluster of stores all selling the same thing? Right. So, so th that's the basic economic model. And then I'm going to think about there's people who own these points and they have the opportunity first to fight over ownership of these points to try and t and so you want to think about the model they're anticipating looking ahead they're anticipating look if i fight for control of this thing and i win then the economic game that i just described to you the economic game in which we control these points on the circle and we set prices and people buy from us right that's going to change because now i own more of these locations and i have less competition right mm -hmm. so you start with there's these simple points on a circle. I own some of them. The more of them that I own, the higher prices I can charge and the more profits I can make because I face less competition. And then we step back a stage in the game and we say, now I have to choose, do I want to fight hard for this, this new territory or do I not want to fight hard for this new territory? And I do that, and this is the game theoretic idea, I do that anticipating that tomorrow, if I take it, I'm going to be in a stronger position economically. So you can think about this as, you know, you run a gang and you've got, that's a business, right? And you've got resources and those resources take the form of people, they take the form of money and they take the form of weapons. They also maybe take the form of your willingness to antagonize other people. But let's just think about you're going to, you've got a bunch of money and you've got a bunch of people and you've got a bunch of weapons and you've got to decide how much of that do I want to turn, right? I can use all of that for profit. I can take it and I can spend it. I can pay off my people, I can put it in my, in my bank account, I can whatever, right, I've got this money. Or I can convert it, right, from, from resources I can consume into resources I can use, right? So I can take my money and I can turn it into weapons, and I can take my, my people who are out there selling drugs and making me money, and I can turn them into soldiers, right? And I can use those to try and take territory. So I'm always making a decision about how much of my, of my personnel resources and my monetary resources to use for consumption, to use for selling, right, for making profits, versus to use for territorial expansion, if you will, right? And so in the case of a Chicago street gang, I literally am making a choice. Do I want to buy more guns? Do I want to send my people away from selling drugs and off to try and take another thing, knowing that they might get killed, knowing that they might get arrested, knowing all of these things, which is going to be literally costly to me because I'm going to have to go out and recruit new people. I'm going to have to replace those guns, all of these things. So I think, I mean, there's a very sort of straightforward economic interpretation of all of that, but what it looks like in the world is buying guns and using them. Mm -hmm. And so walk me through my gang leader's thought process as it works out in the model. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a leader. And I say to myself, well, that territory might be available for conquest. Do I want to take it? And here are the things I want to think about. The main thing I want to think about is if I go and fight for that territory and I take it, what will my profits look like tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll be bigger. I'll be more profitable. All of these things. On the other hand, the other guy's going to fight back, and that's going to be costly. So I also want to think to myself, how hard is he going to fight, 
right? Is he going to, when I show up with all my guys, is he going to walk, walk away and, and cede the territory to me? Is he going to fight really hard? That's going to affect my decision making, right? I also want to think, and this is again sort of a game theoretic idea as opposed to just sort of an economic idea, if I take that territory, there's going to be, there are all these other gangs out there controlling territories. As I expand, how are they going to respond, not just in terms of violence, but economically, right? And this is where you get back to the idea of the number of factions. So mm -hmm. in a market like this, right, concentration is good for everybody. That is, you know, think about your intuitions you have from basic economics that uh, monopolists make more money than firms in really competitive markets. The reason we like competitive markets, right, is that when we think when there's lots of people competing, they have to charge lower and lower prices. That's good for consumers. It's bad for the firms, though, right? They're making fewer profits. So same thing here, right? One of the things that violence can do is let firms, these gangs, right, consolidate. And when they consolidate, they get to drive up prices and drive up profits, right? So if I'm uh, leader, one of the things I'm thinking when I take that territory is how are the other surrounding firms going to respond in terms of the change in prices? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that gives rise to the idea that big factions fight harder is that big factions have very high stakes because that territory over there, if I'm big and my competitors are big, prices are already very high because we face very little competition, which means each territory is a huge profit maker. Yeah, when you got just a few pro factions, everybody's charging astronomical prices, everybody's making a ton of money, right. and each territory is super valuable, mm -hmm. right? When you got a bazillion little factions, each territory is not so valuable, and so that's why they fight harder. It's also why they fight less frequently, because now that territory, on the one hand, it's super valuable, on the other hand, I really, really want it. And when I really, really want it, and the other guy understands I really, really want it, sometimes he runs away. Right. Right? So I show up. I'm like, this thing is incredibly valuable to me. I'm going to bring a huge amount of resources. And the other guy's like, this fight is going to be very costly. I'm going to cede the territory. Right. You call it the scare-off effect. The scare-off right? effect, yeah. Uh-huh. And that, I think that would surprise a lot of people, you know. I mean, that, like you were just saying, it's, we're so kind of ingrained to think the other way. Were you surprised personally? I guess I hadn't. Yeah. So I, I think I, I learned... I changed my intuitions a surprising amount for this in this in the <laughs> exercise of doing this model, which is not, as I said, always the case. I mean, it's a fun paper for me to write because I feel like um, whether the results in the end are right or wrong in the sense of like, are there other things? Go There's in any model, right? You leave out most of what's going on in the world and you sure. focus on a couple things. Uh, my head got turned around a lot in terms of my intuitions working on this paper, and this is one of the ways and that you that you you get this kind of intensity effect, which makes sense to me. And then you get this scare-off effect, which now makes sense to me, but which I had not thought about in advance. That said, I was first working on this model at the same time that ISIS sort of had its first big territorial expansion. And one of the things that happened, of course, right, was that when, when ISIS first started taking big cities in Iraq, right, what, what people thought the Iraqi army and they would, would head them off, and you had these amazing cases where the opposition to ISIS simply, right, melted away. They showed mm -hmm. up ready to fight, and there was nobody there to fight. They just completely walked away from the cities and, and ceded the territory. Right? Now they've come back and fought back, but I was like, oh, look, look at that, right? There you have it. <laughs> we think, like, no, everybody always stands and fights for things that are valuable, but that's not right. Sometimes sure. you, you either live to fight another day or the other guy is willing to fight so hard you know you can't win.
There's been this, this revolution in the last 10 years in the study of political violence, which I think has been very, very exciting, which is that if you think about sort of, if you think about the way the Harris School talks about studying evidence-based policymaking, right? They talk about trying to think about really careful attention to all the things that can go wrong when you try and compare cases to do valid causal inferences, the way we talk about it, but mm -hmm. all the things that can go wrong. And that sort of ethos has really come to the political violence community in the last, in, in the post 9-11 world. And mm -hmm. so you have all these empirical scholars who are trying to think really carefully about trying to tease out causal mechanisms from data inside empirical, in, inside political violence. And what that mostly involves is, is going away from the way we had done things or people had done things over the last 30 years, which is big cross-country comparisons. I want to know the effect of the economy on violence. I collect data on violence, you know, civil wars, say, across countries and GDP across countries, and I compare poor countries to rich countries and see who had more or less civil war kind of thing and say, like, look, you're never going to give all sorts of problems with that kind of comparison, right. right? So maybe the rich countries are also more democratic or maybe they're in different geographies or whatever, right? And so who knows what's, what's causal and what's not causal. And so instead, scholars have gone sort of inside conflicts to try and get more valid comparisons. And so they'll do things like this. They'll say, I want to know the effect of an economic shock on the level of violence, or I want to know the effect on the shock of the, between the number of factions on the level of violence. So what do I do? I say, let's think about within Mexico. I say there's some shock um, to the value of marijuana crops in this location versus this other location. Right? Something that happens in the world that we think didn't directly affect violence but affects the economic thing we're interested in. So there's a paper, a very nice paper, that uh, says cultivating corn, maize, and cultivating marijuana are somewhat substitutes in the Mexican economy. So we could use a price shock or a weather shock in the United States to corn-producing areas. So there's some, some weather thing happens in the United States. It affects the world price of corn. Mm -hmm. That affects some Mexican localities more than others because those Mexican localities uh, are more suited to growing corn. Okay. okay. And so now you have something that happened way off in the United States that we don't think is related to the Mexican marijuana market or the things over which the drug gangs are fighting, but which affects agricultural decisions in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now all of a sudden we've got nature has come in and made a little experiment for us inside the country. And we can compare that shock on places where it affected versus places where it didn't affect in Mexico. So we're fixing inside Mexico, and we say municipalities affected by this shock versus municipalities not affected by this shock, how are they differentially affected? Mm -hmm. okay? So that's the kind of thing that empiricists have turned to, and they've done it all over the world, in the Philippines, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and these kind of local, local changes and using other localities inside the same conflict as control groups. So that's great and big progress in terms of our understanding of the mechanisms of violence. So this paper suggests, however, some potential problems, at least in some settings, with that kind of approach. And the basic thought is my model, as I said, right, when you have this circle, is kind of an integrated economy, right? So you think about an economy where municipalities are touching each other or whatever, right? And there's some shock, say, inside my municipality, my little point on my circle, mm -hmm. right, that affects, I don't know, my ability to charge higher or lower prices. It's how many people are near me or uh, the value of the product in my, in my area versus in other areas. And that's going to affect my behavior in this sort of economic game I described. But in an integrated economy, that's going to have spillovers. Why is it going to have spillovers? So think about the story about Chicago street gangs. Something happens at one street corner 
that makes it, say, more desirable to sell drugs there. Maybe they put up housing where there's a, there's a big inflow of people, and now all of a sudden there's more population density, and that location became more valuable. Yeah? Mm -hmm. That's going to affect pricing behavior there. And all those other guys who are thinking at other, other street corners who are thinking about, about the possibility that people might come by from them right, are going to be affected too because like, there's that really valuable territory over there. Now, I don't own it. But maybe if I lowered my prices, some of those people from over there would come buy from me. And there's so many of them, maybe I'm willing to lower my prices, right? And that's a spillover. So you have this shock. They put up the housing at street corner one, and over at street corner two, those guys are thinking about it, right? Well, so when you have those kinds of spillovers, then the this idea of a control group becomes problematic, right? So the idea of the empirical work was to say there's some shock at this one town, but not at this other town, Right? Let's use the town that didn't experience the shock as a control group for the town that did. But if the shock hits the one town and then its ripple effects are felt all over the place, it spread, the, its effect on violence spreads everywhere because its effect on the economy spreads everywhere. And that renders sort of problematic this idea of a shock and control group kind of dis research design. Those research designs are still much better than what we had before, but the theoretical model, I think, and this is one of sort of the ways in which this kind of social science progresses, you get this whole new influx of empirical work that's much more thoughtful than what we had before. And then theorists come along and say, look, this is great, but let's try and write down a model of what you guys are doing and see that it might not be perfect and use our theoretical model, right, which tells us some things about mechanisms to help think about what might go wrong in the empirical work so that in the next iteration we can do it, we can do it better. And so that's sort of the, the hope with this paper is that one of the things it'll do besides giving some intuitions about how things like Chicago drug gangs might work is to say to empirical researchers, you know, not everything's perfect with, what we've, with the progress we've made, and let's use this theoretical model to help us think about what we might do to avoid the next set of problems. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because I feel like so often people think about game theory as, um, oh, here's this very simplified model that can't give us a really accurate depiction of reality, but it's actually sort of the converse in this situation of you were able to, you know, suggest an improvement to the empiricist. Yeah, I think this is important. I think it is right to say it doesn't give us an accurate picture of reality, and it is wrong to think that that should ever be the goal, right? <laughs> I mean, the whole point of, of social science is that reality in its totality and all of its, you know, gory details is way, way, way too complicated for anybody to understand. Mm -hmm. And so what we try and do is pick out little bits of it and make sense of them, right? And it's also a mistake to think that it all comes from one study. I think this is actually a very general mistake with the way we talk about social science research, especially the way the press talks about social science research. We love to pick out the one study, right, with the awesome result and report it as though we're done. Whereas, in fact, what social science is is a long iterative process where you have a whole literature with lots of people trying to make sense of some very complicated thing. We each pull out little bits of it, make the best we can, right, talk to each other. And so I think this is an illustration of that. that you have these empiricists doing this nice work. You can definitely write a New York Times story about each of those empirical papers, and it sounds like the end of the story, right? And then a theorist can come along and say, let me give you a ridiculously simple model that misses almost everything that we think is important, but nonetheless has this idea which is important for what you're doing, right, which, which turns around your intuitions a little bit about how what you're doing, and then we can do it again. It also, I mean, it also contradicts, I think, Another standard thing we're taught in sort of high school science, which is this idea of the scientific method going from hypothesis to test, right? Mm -hmm. So here you have a bunch of tests, and then you have a theorist coming along and saying, 
here's some hypotheses that are a response to your tent, right? And right. there's no, it's all chicken and egg, right? There's no start, there's no <laughs> beginning, we're just talking, right? And trying to do better and better and better. Professor Buena de Mesquita, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe to Radio Harris. This episode was produced by me, Jake Smith, with music from A Smile for Timbuktu, Dark Wizard, and Sharif Ahmed.